the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized in 2012 as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, today accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hello, everybody. Okay, for those of you who don't know the show, the show is about estate planning and elder law. The first part of the show is about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes you need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. Now... The second part of the show, we talk about politics, history, religion. Since we're in the Easter season, we're going to be talking about religion this weekend. And we have two guests on, Richard Crowlin, scientist who's got a book out, Enlightened, in the 21st century. And he argues or postulates that he can prove the existence of God through science. The second interview we have today is an old friend of the show's, Patrick Novakowski, who's got a book on John Paul, 100 Ways That John Paul Changed the World. And I know there are a lot of books about John Paul, and even a couple of weeks ago, we talked to Dr. Mario Enslow, who was a, a papal guard, you know, to the Pope. And... You know, he had some very interesting observations to the Pope. Pat's talking more about John Paul's influence on on history. So we're looking forward to to that interview. Now, again, getting back to the first part of the show, we're talking about estate planning and elder law. And, you know, things have changed dramatically, obviously, you know, since the last time we've done a, a show. The whole world has changed. I remember it was just a few weeks ago we were at a St. Patrick's Day party and there were 500 people there and and people were socializing and drinking and, um, you know, having a good time. And it, it seemed like a week later, the whole world changed. And we've had to change with it at Connors and Sullivan. Fortunately, we do provide some essential services, including this radio show. We're allowed to operate, but we're, we're operating a, a greatly reduced staff. And, you know, think, things have, have, have to be done differently, which is something I'm not really used to. I mean, I'm not used to having phone consultations, lengthy phone consultations. I like to be in the room with the person, look them in the eye, talk about what concerns them. And it's not as easy to get to the the heart of the matter 
uh, what you really need if, if we're talking on the phone. But we have to adjust right now because that's the way the world is. And if you, if you do want to give us a call and talk about your estate planning, our phone number is 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Again, reduced staff, but we are open for business. And, you know, electronically, we can do a lot more than we could used to do. Like, for instance, for the sake of argument, we can sign a power of attorney, notarize a power of attorney through Skype or Zoom. Beth, you want to explain that a little bit? Well, we're all learning about Skype and Zoom these days. Um, Shwai, who's this wonderful young attorney, is setting us up trying to teach us all, all us old bats how to use it. But... Um, each person's you can get on the computer, and if if we have a client at home, like you know, sheltering at home, um, and you have a computer, and you have either Skype or Zoom on your computer, um, my husband and the other attorneys can actually talk to you via your computer. Um, if you don't have that, um, part of it is you can, if, if you don't have the video portion of it, you can do it on a phone, you know, that's the, that ends up being the telephone con, um, consultations. But what we're doing now, um, you know, we had the free consultations. You would come into the office, but we just can't do that anymore. So now we do it by telephone. You call, you get the free consultation, and then if you have a computer, computer and or a fancy phone one of the smartphones and you can do zoom or skype we can actually talk to you long distance looking at each other so um we are being dragged into technology by the coronavirus and it's probably it's probably best for us but um we send our love to everybody out there i know it's there are so many hardships so um we pray for everybody all all the time and um most of as you can imagine we have um lost many clients right now to this horrible disease and um we're so sad but we're here and we keep going um and so we'll do whatever we have to do to take care of emergencies for people. So um, like like Mike said, if you need us, give us a call. And again, the number is 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Now, one of the things, too, I mean, ordinarily in April, we'd start doing seminars, but obviously we can't do seminars because uh, we, we used to do the seminar. Well, first of all, you can't have a gathering of more than a few people. And we used to do seminars at restaurants and, and hotels, and obviously they're all closed right now, which, believe me, I feel it, it hurts me very much that all those people are out of a job at, at restaurants and hotels. You know, but, but one of the things, Beth, maybe we can do, you know, when we talk about doing the seminars, I start with the basic estate planning tools, the some documents that really pretty much everybody in the world should have. Um, everybody should have a will. Everybody who's got family they can trust should have a power of attorney. And for the most part, you should have a health care proxy. Now, what's a will? A will is a writing witnessed by two people that disposes of assets in your name alone. It appoints an executor. 90, 95% of the time, the executor is going to be a family member, your spouse, your son, your daughter, trusted nephew or niece. doesn't have to be, you know, a family member. 
um, let's say for the sake of argument, you're leaving everything to your church. Well, then you may want somebody besides a family member. or Maybe you don't have a family to be your executor. And your executor can be any person over 18, not convicted of a crime, um, preferably a U.S. citizen. We can work around that in certain cases. We need somebody else who is a U.S. citizen. If you have a green card in New York, sometimes that's one of the exceptions. But an executive can be really pretty much anybody, a person you choose to wrap up your legal financial business matters after you're gone. And, you know, some people say, well, I don't need a will because everything I own is joint or it's in a trust. So why do I need a will? Well, there, there, there are hundreds of things that can go wrong when you don't have a will. First of all, you could have everything joint with that one person, but that one person could die before you, or maybe you die in an accident together. I know it doesn't happen often, but it does happen. And a lot of times you see it's somebody, you know, you got a 90-year-old mother. She has her son as beneficiary on her bank account. Son dies at 65. Mom's 90. She can't make any changes to her IRA or 401k or uh, whatever bank account she has and trust for because she's not mentally competent anymore. Well, that's where the will would take over that. You know, the will would say, I leave everything to my son. If something happens to my son, it goes wherever, you know, let's say to the grandchildren. But again, you can't change that if, let's say, the person is not mentally competent to change it. So that's one reason you have a will, too. This happens all the time. Somebody dies in a house. The police put a seal on the house. You want to get the seal taken off the house. Well, it's a lot easier to do that if you have a will with a named executor than you don't, especially if you don't have, you know, close family that can can apply to be the administrator of the estate. You know, like I I knew one case that uh, there was a lady. She had everything. She had all her bank accounts except one um, with beneficiaries on it. She lived in an apartment. She didn't get along with her relatives. She didn't talk to her relatives. She died. Police put a seal on the apartment. Well, she didn't have a will, so the only person who could apply to be the administrator in ordinary circumstances would be one of her relatives. But her relatives didn't care. So the seal stayed on the apartment. She had direct withdrawal from her bank account paying the rent. So she was still paying the rent for months after she died. Um, like I said, the relatives weren't involved in her beneficiary plans, so they didn't care. None of the people that were beneficiaries were her relatives, so with no will, they could not apply to be the administrator of the estate and close out the rent. And, and it was a mess, and we lost $10,000 plus a lot of time, plus the personal items in the apartment were lost. And some of them may have had a great financial value, or an economic value, but they still may have a sentimental value. You know, your pictures with your friends may not mean anything financially, but it could mean something sentimentally. Obviously, that person should have a will. And, you know, there, there there's so many things that can happen. You know, I give stories at our seminars of, of horror cases. And, yeah, and, and believe me, every time when we used to do the seminars and we talked about a woman who died without a will, all those cases I'm talking about, they're, they're not – Speculation. I'm not using my imagination. I'm using my memory. I've seen everything happen, and I've seen it more than a few times. Believe me, I could give you a hundred more reasons why, you know, I don't need a will. Everything's joint. Everything's in trust for. Things happen. And a lot of times people have a car, and they don't have a will. And to get rid of the car sometimes, if you're married, it's okay. But if you're not married and you own a car, it's not that easy to sell the car if there's no will. 
And it, it could be a, a lot of times people forget about a checking account and their name alone. Again, to get access to that, it's it's better to have a will. Maybe you got U.S. savings bonds in the attic that you forgot about. And maybe it's not a lot of money. Maybe it's only $5,000. But do you want to wait, throw away $5,000? Again, everybody should have a will. Yeah, we plan things out so that the will doesn't have to go through probate except for maybe some loose ends. But I can't stress this enough. Everybody should have a will. Now, each week on Kevin McCullough, Kevin asks one of our questions on his radio show, one of the questions sent by our listeners on his radio show. And so you can listen to Kevin Monday through Friday at 5 o'clock on 970 The Answer, 3 o'clock on WMCA 570 The Mission. So take it away, Kevin. Hi, Kevin McCullough, and live from the Connors and Sullivan Broadcast Studios, uh, every single week I get to uh, uh, ask a question of Mike Connors of Connors and Sullivan, and uh, he answers it for you, per our promise to you. Mike, today's question comes from Catherine. I'm 55 years old and in good health. When should I start thinking about getting a will? Mike Connors, what say you? Right away. You never know what's going to happen in this world. Just because you're 55 doesn't mean nothing will happen. And, you know, if you do a will today, it's still good unless you change it. It's still good 30 years from now when maybe it, it may come up that it's necessary. But everybody should have a will. Car accidents happen. You know, sudden illnesses. Doesn't anybody know that right now? <laughs> um, you know, you never know when you're going to pass away, and it's always good to have a will before you pass away. So the right time to do a will is the day before you die, and and. In other respects, you should do it as soon as possible. And sadly, we don't uh, really ever know when that day before is likely going to happen. Uh, and, uh, Mike, I'm also thinking that if someone is at that uh, a stage of life, it's probably not bad to examine what things they should have in trusts at the same time, correct? Right. Well, 55 is is maybe a little young to think about a trust because, you know, life is a gamble, but everybody should have a will because you don't want to gamble that you're not going to pass away and that there's going to be chaos after you're gone. A trust, yeah, we want to do a trust to avoid probate, to protect assets from medical bills. But, you know, everybody should have a will. That's a no-brainer. All right. Friends, if you would like to get the expert help of Connors & Sullivan in uh, making sure that you have the will or the trust or whatever else you need, call their office now. They're working right now, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. And then be listening for Mike to answer more questions here at Kevin McCullough Radio on uh, Thursdays. His own show on Saturday mornings at 8 o'clock on AM 570, The Mission, and FM 102.3, and Sunday mornings at 11 on AM 970, The Answer. Mike Connors, thanks so much. Thank you again, Kevin. And now we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. I'm here. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death, and it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. 
That's jwcigiving.org. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. I'm here, too. Okay, so the first segment, we talked a little bit about a will, which is a very important document, and everybody should have a will. Now, the other two main basic estate planning documents, PAV attorney and healthcare proxy. A PAV attorney is a document notarized and witnessed by two people if it's going to be complete, where you appoint someone 90, 95% of the time that someone's going to be a family member to pay your bills, protect your assets, God forbid you suffer from a stroke or another disabling illness. PAV attorney is a very powerful document. And if you're married, you trust your spouse, you want to protect your spouse, I strongly recommend you think about a PAV attorney. A lot of people are under the false impression that a husband and wife can sign each other's name. So say, well, I don't need a PAV attorney because one, everything I have is joint. Well, as far as that account is concerned, that's true. But let's say a husband and wife, husband has an IRA. He has a stroke. He has to go to a nursing home. Wife wants to access the IRA to pay some bills. She can't do that without her husband's signature. And if he's not competent, she can't do it without a PAV attorney. Let's say we have a house. Husband's going to a nursing home. Wife wants to switch the house to a trust to protect it from her husband's nursing home bills. She can't switch the deed of that house from husband and wife to wife or wife's trust without her husband's signature. And if he's incompetent, then his power of attorney. So it's an extremely important document. The other thing is, you know, when we talked about a will, everybody should have a will because even if you name the wrong person as executor on your will, whatever they damaged they might do, it's done after you're gone. You give a power of attorney to the wrong person, they misuse that power of attorney. They can steal you blind. You know, So you got to be very careful on a power of attorney. But if you've been married more than a few years, you trust your spouse, you want to protect your spouse, I strongly recommend you think about a power of attorney. And if you have a son or daughter you implicitly trust, think about putting them on the power of attorney. Because if you don't have a power of attorney and you're one of these crisis situations, you have to go to court get a court-appointed guardian, and for the most part, I think every one of you would say, hey, I'd rather choose the person to be in charge rather than the court because sometimes you never quite know what happens, what spins are put out there. Now, one of the things about the power of attorney, too, um, it doesn't cover you know, medical decisions. So if you want to cover medical decisions, then we think about a healthcare proxy. A healthcare proxy is a document, again, witnessed by two people, where you appoint someone, again, usually a family member, to make medical decisions on your behalf if you can't speak for yourself. The power of attorney is for legal financial business matters. The health care proxy is for medical decisions. So, you know, and, you know, you choose the person to make those decisions. Let's say you're in a coma and it's a life or death situation. That's where the health care proxy comes in. Now, some people say, do I need a living will? Well, living will is not a strictly legally enforceable document. 
A living will is a statement of wishes of how you want to be treated, usually at the end of life. The, the thrust of a living will might be, if I'm terminally ill, I have cancer, and I have a heart attack, I don't want to be resuscitated. That's a DNR. Now, you don't. Uh, so, some people say to me, hey, you didn't do a DNR for me. Well, ordinarily, we're not going to do a DNR for you unless a doctor states that you have only a few months to live and there's very little harm in, you know, if, if you have a heart attack and they don't try to save your life. So ordinarily, uh, until it's the end, if we have a heart attack, we do want, you know, medical doctors to try to save our life. But that is the point of, of the healthcare proxy. You choose the person who has the same philosophy of life that you do. You appoint that person to make medical decisions on your behalf if you can't speak for yourself. Again, the PAV attorney, that's for financial, business, legal matters. And also, if you don't have a properly drafted PAV attorney, in a lot of cases, it's very difficult to apply for home care Medicaid if the person's incompetent. And, you know, as I mentioned, if you have family members out there you can trust, I strongly recommend that you think about doing a PAV attorney. And by the way, right now, PAVs of attorney, we can sign remotely. We can do it by Zoom or Skype. You can be sitting in your home. We send you a copy of the PAV attorney. We tell you where to sign. You got to send it back to us, and we can get it notarized if we see you sign it, you know, on Skype or Zoom. And, and if you want to find out how to do that, give us a call at Connors and Sullivan at 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. We're going to take a short break, and then we'll be talking to our guests about Pope John Paul II and proof of God. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646. Or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646 and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home, but if you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, 
I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit catholicscomehome.org today. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Time now for Connors Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. Right now, we, we have an old friend of the show. shouldn't say he's old, but friend of the show has been <laughs> on a few times, Patrick Novikoski. And you're right now, or you're coming out with a book in the spring, Pat. What's the name of it? Yeah, it's called 100 Ways John Paul II Changed the World. Okay, now, obviously, over the years, there have been a lot of books about John Paul II. What insights are you giving to the reader through your book? Well, the thing that's unique about this book is that it unpacks his legacy in, in a really unique way. I literally come up with 100 ways that he changed the world. Each of those ways is one page, with the exception of the top 10. I gave them two pages because they're a little more weighty, a little more impactful. And, and the reason I picked 100 is because in May, May 20th to be exact, is the centenary of his birth. He would have been 100 years old. So we're, we're marking his, the anniversary of his birth, the uh, 100 years, with 100 ways he changed the world. And I draw from a lot of sources. I met John Paul personally. I met him five times. And so I'm drawing some, from some of my insights and my experiences with him. And I'm also drawing from a number of sources, including his writing, his speeches, uh, some of his, his biographers, George Weigel, of course, and and pulling together for for people that know John Paul already. Uh, I think they're going to learn a lot about him. I knew a lot about him before I started writing this, but I was shocked at how much I learned. I actually sent my my manuscript before it was published to uh, two friends who grew up in Poland under communism, under John Paul II as as a bishop and as pope, and. They, they came back to me and I said, he, they said, I hope you have sources for all this because I didn't know, know any of this stuff. So I think for people that already know John Paul or think they do, there's a lot here. And I'm particularly after the younger audience who grew up under Pope Benedict and Pope Francis who didn't live under John Paul but only know about him. So I really think this is going to be a personal experience of who, who was this man what were his, his what what formed him and how did he impact the world and uh, so it, I think it's a fascinating book. It was fascinating for me to write it. Now, what, what you said there the top ten? Can you give us an example of the top yeah. ten? Well, yeah, absolutely. So um, one of them is World Youth Day. Uh, John Paul gathered youth in the early 1980s in Paris, and and he gave them an address. And, and from that, the idea came that it was, it was so successful. It was, it was massively successful. I think he gathered over 250,000 people in Paris that one year. And, and then he went back to Rome, and, he, and, and he, I, I, I seemed to get the sense that he thought, this is a really good idea. It, it, it was way more successful than we thought. Maybe we should do this every year. So the, the, it kind of formed into World Youth Day in, in that uh, there is an annual World Youth Day uh, address that the Pope gives, the current Pope and previous Popes, um, 
and, and it's supposed to be celebrated in each diocese every year, or at least marked, right? And then every two to three years, there's an international gathering where the Pope actually attends. And that was a tradition that John Paul started uh, with that first gathering in the early 80s. So that's one. Um, another one is, is theology of the body, which is really him unpacking who we are as human beings, how God created us, and how literally written into our bodies are, are the, the great questions that, that people ask. Who am I? Why was I created? And, and through his theology of the body, he also answers the question, is, who is God? If we want to know who God is, we need to look at, at how he created us. And, and he really unpacked that through his, his uh, weekly addresses from 1979 to 1982, I believe, 1983. Uh, every Wednesday, he would give a, a brief teaching, and that got compiled into what we now know as theology of the body. Um, so that's two of them. Um, another one, a really big one that's actually pretty simple, is unpacking the Second Vatican Council. John Paul was a very young bishop in 1962 when, when John XXIII called the Second Vatican Council. He was one of the most influential men behind the scenes primarily at the Second Vatican Council. So uh, Paul VI began to unpack the council uh, through the late 60s, early 70s, and then John Paul came onto the scene about 10 years after the council ended and became John Paul II. He understood the council intimately and its teachings because he was part of writing those teachings, and he took it as his mandate to uh, explain the council and to teach the council to, to the entire church, to the entire world. And that runs through the, the whole course of his pontificate. Every, almost everything he ever wrote referred back to the Second Vatican Council. So he did that very well. Um, Another one in the, the, the top 10 is Divine Mercy. So for those of your, your listeners who are not Catholic, um, there was a saint, uh, a, a nun, young nun in Poland in the 1930s who had visions of Jesus appearing to her. One of the things that, and she wrote these things all down in a diary. Uh, one of the things that Jesus said to her was, I want you to prepare the world for my second coming. No small task, right? <laughs> and uh, so, so the, the main crux of what Jesus was telling her is, is that now is the time for God to pour out his mercy on, on sinners, and we're all sinners, right? So it, it's a special time that, that and she, she wrote this down in her diary, um, so essentially to tell the world that repent now, because, you know, we're already a day closer than we were yesterday to, to Christ's second coming, and that we need to be prepared for that. And it's a special time of God's mercy. So, um, so her name was St. Faustina Kowalska. She died just before the Second World War started. And uh, the, the whole message that she had from, from the Lord was, was kind of stopped for a while. And then uh, when John Paul became Archbishop of Krakow, he, kind of, he, he had his top theologians study her writings, essentially authenticated them and said, yeah, there's everything that she's writing in her diary uh, matches up with Scripture. There's nothing outside of, you know, the traditional teachings of the Catholic Church in her writings. So therefore, you know, it, it seems legit. And, and then just a few months later, he became Pope. And so... 
he kind of saw it as his task to 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 you know explore this woman's life and her sanctity and her cause for canonization advanced. He beatified her and then he canonized her in 2000. And uh, so so that's where the divine mercy comes from. That, that this message and devotion, and it's for the whole world. So. Uh, another one in the top 10 is that, and I put this one as number one, just because um, it, it, it seemed to be the most impactful of what he did. And that's the new evangelization. Um, the, the church exists to evangelize. The first thing that Jesus said when in his public ministry was come and see. He said this to him when he was calling his, his disciples, the apostles. And the last thing he said before he ascended into heaven is go out and teach the good news to, to all the world, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's called the Great Commission. And throughout the 2,000 years of Christianity, the church has been at times really ineffective in, in carrying out that Great Commission to, to make disciples of the world and to preach the good news. John Paul put a big spotlight on evangelization on re-evangelizing those of us who, who have already heard the gospel in the Western world primarily, and, and to, to kind of unpack that in a different way so that it, it gets our attention. Uh, in one of his writings, John Paul said, the church needs to put all of her energies into evangelization. Now, when the church says that, that when the Pope says that, you know, we need to commit all of our energies, all of our, our, our ambition, all, of, all that we have to, to evangelizing, um, then, then we as the, the, the faithful need to pay attention to that. And so essentially his pontificate was on preaching the good news, and, uh, which is, you know, primary, that's a primary objective for not just for priests and bishops, but for us as lay people to live our faith in a dynamic way and to, to understand that part of our call through our baptism is, is evangelization, is talking about our Lord, who should be our first love. Now, what's your overall? I mean, every all of us, you know, would would agree with the name John Paul the Great. But yeah, do you think? What do you think the current state of church leadership is compared to what it was under John Paul? Well, I I think we've been very spoiled the last one hundred years. We've had very intelligent, holy, uh, articulate, um, spirit filled men. As as Pope, um, from Pope Leo the Thirteenth onward, uh, the last hundred, hundred twenty years, exceptional men, and, and that hasn't always been the case. In, in the two thousand years of the, the Church, we've had some really bad popes. We, we've you know, you know, people know about the Borgia popes because they were very corrupt, um, and, and and you know we got we had uh, Paul the Sixth, then we then we had John Paul the Second, John Paul the First, of course, a very short pontificate, and then Benedict the Sixteenth, and and Francis, you, you know, one of the things that I learned about Pope Francis uh, in in doing this book on John Paul the Second is there's actually more um, more consistency between. John Paul II and Pope Francis, than I thought there was. Uh, One example is the death penalty. So John Paul um, authorized and developed the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It was published in the early 80s, sorry, early 90s, early 90s. Um, But that was, again, that's one of his top five gifts to the church. One of his greatest legacies is the Catechism, because it really teaches, it, it, it writes out, everything that we believe is Catholics and gives us the reasons why. And, and, and it's a remarkable achievement. 
So one of the things in the catechism that John Paul changed after the first publication was the, the teaching on the death penalty. John Paul essentially said that it's exceedingly rare that the death penalty should be used. And then and he, he said almost never. It's almost never necessary or acceptable. Pope Francis uh, took that a step further and, and says it's, it's never necessary. So um, John Paul essentially said, you know, the ball's on the one-yard line, and we're just going to move it a half a foot closer to the goal line. And Pope Francis just pushed that ball into the end zone. If you like that analogy. Um, so there, that's, that's one of the things that I noted, not only in that, but John Paul, what he said about the environment and care of the earth, uh, a lot of consistency between Francis and John Paul, not in everything, but in more than I expected that there would be. Okay, so what's the name of your book again? It's called 100 Ways John Paul II Changed the World. Pat, thank you for being on Connor's Corner. My pleasure. Always good talking to you, Michael. Hi, Kevin McCullough. Planning for the future is important. Are you and your family protected? If you're not around to make the decisions, who will? Are your assets protected from probate and nursing home costs? The time to plan is now. Need a will, trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, living will, or estate plan? The goal of Connors and Sullivan's attorneys is always the protection of your rights and interests. They've been helping people like you plan their estates and protect their families for 40 years. Talk with Mike Connors in a free comprehensive telephone consultation and see how you can help protect your family, your assets, and your legacy. Have all your questions answered from the security of your home during these difficult days. The biggest mistake when it comes to estate planning is not planning at all. Now is not the time to put it off. Call Connors and Sullivan today to schedule a free telephone consultation with Mike Connors. Call 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Or visit their website, connorsandsullivan.com. I'm in a good place in my life. And I'm energized by new adventures. I've got friends to laugh with. And a good relationship. But even though I'm kind of comfortable? I sometimes wonder, is there something more? Could God in church be what you're looking for? Come and see at catholicscomehome.com. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. Our next guest, he has a book out, Enlightened in the 21st Century. His name, Richard Crowlin. Richard, welcome to Connors Corner. Thank you, Mike. Nice to be here. So what's your book about? You can tell the, you know, the audience in a, to just give us a, an idea, because I think it's, it's really a very interesting concept. Well, what I've done, Mike, is I've taken the scientific advances of the last 50 years, uh, in fact, many of them in the last 25 years, and most people don't follow science the way I do. I'm a science junkie. But I've taken these advances in astronomy, you know, what we're seeing with the Hubble Space Telescope and other orbiting telescopes, what we've learned about the universe. I'm taking advances in particle physics and chemistry, biochemistry. We've, you know, we've mapped the human genome. I'm presenting in a very understandable, easy-to-read way uh, the scientific facts that really are not disputed, and I'm using them to confirm the reality of God's existence and of God's presence in our everyday life. And I think anyone who reads this book 
if they uh, if they are an atheist before they read it, they're going to have to reconsider their belief in God. I think is a very convincing case. Now, your opinion? W- would you say that most of the scientific community does not believe in God? Is that a fair statement, or is that not true? No, I don't think that's true. And I think as time goes on, fewer of them don't believe in God because as we get into really understanding more about the complexity of life, for example. You know, what DNA does, it has parallel functions. I go in to describe this in the book. I mean, it it is just so complex that really it's beyond uh, a reasonable uh, doubt that, you know, this could not have just happened accidentally. There's too many things going on there. And people who are geneticists, I have a nephew who's a biotechnology engineer. The things that they're seeing every day that hadn't been seen before it really takes us beyond, uh, you know, beyond the random chance type assumption. And the short version, how can you convince somebody that there is a God? Well, I'll tell you what, let's uh, just look at science. Everything I do is based on science in the book. Uh, the lungs that you're breathing, uh, the oxygen that you're breathing right now in your lungs and the oxygen I'm breathing and the oxygen they're breathing on the space station uh, in orbit and the oxygen that's uh, trapped in water on the North Pole of Mars. I mean, all of this oxygen is behaving exactly the same. I mean, every oxygen molecule behaves the same as every other oxygen molecule. And that's because the laws of physics exist. Every scientist agrees that there are laws of physics, they exist, and they're being enforced uniformly across the entire universe. I mean, that's actually what the whole subject of science is about, discovering these laws of physics and understanding how they work. So what I'm saying is that something, and I don't know what it is, none of us have the ability to comprehend the nature of such a being or an entity or a force, but something created the laws of physics and something is enforcing those laws of physics continuously across the entire universe, even at the subatomic level. I mean, every subatomic particle Every quantum of energy behaves consistently with every other one of the same type. So all I'm saying is that that whatever that being is, I mean, it exists, so I'm giving it the the word being. Whatever that being is, whatever that force is, is what created the universe, and it's what's sustaining the universe. And I have no problem at all referring to that being as as God. I mean, that's what religious people are saying. You know, God created the universe. so, I mean, it almost comes down to a semantics issue. If you don't want to call it God, I mean, call it something else. But we're talking about the same thing. We're talking about the force that created the universe and is sustaining the universe. And once you get, I mean, to me, that's actually the easiest part of the argument. The more challenging part of the argument is convincing people that that being is aware of you individually, that he's available to have a relationship with and that he, he can help you when you need help. That's, that's uh, another stage. I get into that kind of in the second part of the book, and uh, which, of course, is very important. Let me ask you a question. When, when science is bringing us to God, why are so many—maybe I'm, uh, I'm talking about the United States right now— but why are so many more Americans turning away from God? Uh, boy, I don't know. Uh, I honestly don't know. I think, you know, if you turn on the TV— uh, today, any day, not, but let's just talk about this week. What do you see? You see coronavirus, you see uh, war in Afghanistan, wars in the Middle East, terrorism, uh, economic problems. I mean, 
everything on, even the entertainment programs are, you know, blood, <laughs> they're violent, they're nasty, they're unpleasant. Uh, there's really a lot of bad messages that everybody receives and uh, even video games. Uh, so, I mean, I think when you, if you think of the world and the, and the universe of being filled with that kind of bad stuff, I think that makes people, uh, you know, certainly more fearful, certainly more selfish and more protective of themselves. And it may cause them to doubt that there's any goodness out there, certainly that there's a great and good entity that's controlling everything. I mean, it's, you know, the truth is that life isn't as bad as what you see on TV. And, uh, you know, there are interests out there who make money on getting you to watch that stuff. Uh, so, yeah, that, that's that's one possible answer. I, I don't know what everybody's thinking, but there certainly is a lot of negativism out there. And if you get around to reading the Gospels of Christ, you know, the lesson there is the exact opposite. You know, you're, you, your life blossoms when you stop being selfish, you stop being fearful, and you start spending your time, your money, your efforts helping other people. I mean, that's where the big payoff comes. That's where you really begin to enjoy uh, and increase the value of your own life, the value of your own existence by, by doing good and being helpful. So what, you know, what the right behavior, as explained by the Gospels, is exactly the opposite of what you see whenever you expose yourself to uh, just about any media these days. So that contradiction might lead to, you know, people feeling that way. What about the existence of evil, of the devil? Yeah, well, you know, I think if you believe in God, you got to believe in, in uh, evil as well. Uh and again, uh, part of the book, I talk about misconceptions and truth. There's a lot of misconceptions that are floating around in the world. They're, they've been accepted as common knowledge, uh, even though they're not true. And I think they help um, They help to support uh, just a general misperception of, of what's really going on. It makes people think things are a lot worse than they are. And, and uh, as a group, these misconceptions will tend to make you more pessimistic and less faithful. But so I point out, uh, I think there's 11 of them in the book that I point out. I explain the, you know, what when you read the misconception, you're going to say, yeah, I mean, everybody knows that's true, but it's not true. And I explain why it's not true. And again, all I'm doing is using scientific data for uh, for my explanation. If I have time to give you one example, the Big Bang Theory, I mean, you can't turn on a, a science show on the Science Channel or the History Channel or PBS about the universe where they don't start by assuming that the Big Bang happened. But the fact is, and again, these are recent discoveries, everybody's heard of the Hubble Space Telescope. The truth is mankind right now has 80 orbiting telescopes above the atmosphere. The Russians have been putting up, the Chinese, Europeans, Japanese, America, of course, even India has a few up there. And these 80 telescopes are looking at the universe 24 hours a day, and what we're seeing up there is completely inconsistent with the Big Bang, with the predictions of the Big Bang. These, there are galaxies out there that are moving away from us faster every day. They're actually accelerating away from us. Nothing in the Big Bang explains that. There are structures in the universe. There's something called the Great Wall. There's filaments. There's these supercluster galaxies. Uh, you know, what we're seeing, the actual scientific data, which we didn't see 30 years ago, but we have it now. It does not confirm the Big Bang. In fact, it contradicts the Big Bang. But everybody thinks the Big Bang happened. Everybody thinks that's how the universe started. You're, you probably learned that in school. Your teachers probably learned that in school. 
but that's not what the scientific data shows. So what I'm doing is I'm using the real scientific data that's not in dispute to kind of deconstruct now, something like the Big Bang, that when I was an atheist, that was one of my crutches. You know, I needed an explanation for how the universe began. And so I assumed it was the Big Bang. But the Big Bang isn't supported by science. So if you want to believe in the Big Bang, that's, I mean, that's fine. It's a free country. You can believe in anything you want to believe in. But just be aware that you're believing in something that is contrary to the scientific observations that are being made every day by these 80 orbiting telescopes that we've got. So, you know, there's misconceptions like that that allow people to believe in things that aren't true. And I'm trying to dust that stuff away so that we can get a better, clearer view of what really is true. Let me ask you something. The universe is so vast. We're here on this small planet. Any theories on why God created such a vast universe and, and are we alone in the universe? It's speculative, I know. Yeah, yeah. I, I'll be honest with you. I, I, the only thing I can say about that is I, I really don't know. I mean, what I have read is through these 80 telescopes we've got, we now estimate that there are about 2 trillion galaxies within the visible universe. And, of course, the more we look, the more we see. So it, when you use the word vast, it's, you know, it's incredibly vast. And each one of these uh, galaxies is uh, estimated to have uh, – I think it's about 100 billion stars, uh, you know, which are solar. I mean, it's so big and so large. I can't even conceive, uh, you know, of what, what, again, what kind of force, what kind of being could create something like this and could sustain it. You know, these laws of physics are consistent. They're not a matter of opinion. I mean, these are observable. And uh, certainly something that's so far beyond my ability to comprehend, I I try not to impart motives or ideas or limits on him, and I'm not willing to accept that there's nothing else alive in the universe besides us. I mean, how many, how many thousands, millions of people have reported UFOs and stuff like that? I mean, that that could be real. I mean, unless they're all mistaken. But yeah, it's it's big, but I can't explain what's going on up there or why it's up there. All right, the name of the book: Enlightened in the 21st Century. Richard, uh, where can you get the book, and who should read it, do you think? Who would get the most out of I it? Think every, yeah, I, well, I, I think everyone should read it, and let me explain why. I mean, if, as I mentioned before, if you're an atheist, this book will cause you to reconsider your belief in God. I, I'm sure it makes a persuasive case along those lines. Since it's been published, I've received you know comments from a couple hundred people. It's been read by thousands of people, of course, and the people of faith— what I'm hearing from them, the people that believed in God before they started reading the book, they've told me that this book has strengthened their faith. It's helped them to see God's presence in their everyday life, and uh, they've been very, uh, you know, very complimentary about it. In terms of where you can get it, uh, it's out there on Amazon, Kindle, Barnes and Noble, Apple iTunes, Nook. Uh, there's a website, uh, just enlightened in the 21st century dot com. If you go out there, you can see the links to all the uh, all the places you can buy it. Uh, so it's it's widely available. Okay, enlightened in the twenty first century, the author Richard Crowland. Thank you for being on Connor's Corner. Thank you, Mike. I really enjoyed it. Happy Easter to everybody, and have a blessed Passover. I was very honored that George Weigel, um, 
wrote the prologue for him. And George Feigl, you know, he learned Polish so he could better understand the the, the writings of, uh, you know, John Paul the the second. And he's truly a remarkable man. We've seen him a few times. He's been on the show, George Feigl, great great theologian, and brilliant, you know, the smartest guy man. in the room wherever he is. <laughs> Now, one of the things, uh, Beth, you just mentioned why we were taping. Um, right, because um, there were, Weigel had this wonderful article about the fact that Cardinal Pell has been exonerated. Um, I believe it's seven to nothing by the high court in Australia. So anybody that's been following that, it's it's an extraordinary um, horror show, I think from Cardinal Pell's point of view, and I think it's just magnificent that this has happened Easter week. Okay, so, again, you know, we had an uh, we had one of the writers from Crisis Magazine. In fact, we should probably write it down and have people from Crisis back again to talk about this. Absolutely, absolutely. You know? Look it up. I mean, it's, it's uh, track the history of this, and I'm curious, you know, to what our listeners think about it, what happened to him. So, um... I would love to hear from y'all. If you want to send us a message, please do. Okay, so thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer. Uh, I think we're going to be on next week. Again, you know, you talk about some other places. We are kind of like in a bunker right now. We are trying our best. Right. Happy Easter and a blessed Passover. But, you know, again, we'll try to be here. Again, we're we're in our bunker here on Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn. <laughs> um, we, we, we've got 12 people in 13,000 square feet trying oh. to distance. But Thank you, everybody. Happy Easter, everyone. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this all away. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this all away. Hi, Kevin McCullough. Are you or your parents' assets protected from nursing home bills? Did you know these bills can exceed $15,000 a month? People work their entire lives to live comfortably in retirement, but when people become ill and need to go to a nursing home or receive home care, the bills can drain their assets, leaving many people bankrupt. The good news is that you can prevent that from happening if you plan in advance. Connors and Sullivan's lawyers can customize a plan that specifically protects your interests, including your home. Schedule a free comprehensive telephone consultation with Mike Connors to discuss your issues and concerns from the security of your home. Call today, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Don't let nursing home bills take your life's savings and leave you and your loved ones bankrupt. Don't wait another minute. Mike Connors can take you through the process by telephone and start a plan designed for you today. That's 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC.